guys, welcome to our first session of Big Truths and Little Packages, our excursion through the four smallest books in the New Testament. The first two books we'll look at, since we just completed 1 John, is 2 John and 3 John. As you can tell, they're about the same page. It is believed that either of these books was written on a single sheet of papyrus, like a postcard. Thank God for the invention of writing and the ability to communicate beyond one's own presence to multiple people. And thank you, Lord, for preserving these books for us. With that being said, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to look at your word. And, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. The canonization of the scriptures involved Constantine bringing church leaders together to help them facilitate their organization more because up to that point they were illegal. They were an underground church, per se. They got to come out of hiding and meet, and they brought their manuscripts with them and began to hash it out, duke it out, debate it out, which books were helpful and which ones weren't. Some people say we have the Roman Catholic Bible. Roman Catholic priests threw out books out of the Bible, and we need them back. Well, that's not exactly the way it happened. Rome obviously began to get involved. But it was two or three emperors later before the Romanization thing really began to take hold and corruption, you know, politics began to take hold and the preachers became employees of the state and all that stuff that's not good. The groundwork for canonization of the scriptures began when the church was underground, basically. And so they began to share their books. And so no doubt various copies of the same books would arrive so that we don't know whether or not Second John was brought up at that meeting in 321 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea, where this happened. But if they brought it, it was no doubt on one single piece of papyrus. It is definitely believed, and I believe it as well, that it's written by John. The same John that wrote the Gospel of John, the same John that wrote his first letter, his second letter, and his third letter. Now keep in mind, when John wrote this, he didn't necessarily know it's going to be studied by groups such as ours centuries later. He was just writing to encourage people in dealing with the problems they had in their day. In Second John, he alludes to the fact that there are some false teachers traveling around that are tearing down the Christian faith in promoting error. And he says, don't be hospitable to those guys. And then in 3 John, he mentions people that are promoting truth, that are also traveling, spreading their message, and he says, be hospitable to those guys, and he labels the guy resisting these traveling men of God. With that being said, let's dive in to John's second epistle. He didn't call it my second letter, he wrote other letters, and we call it to John, or the second epistle of John. An epistle is not a little apostle, it's a letter. All right, so I'll read the first six verses, and then we'll dive in. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. 
I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. As we receive commandment from the Father, and now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Who is this lady he's writing? His other books aren't addressing a particular lady. Some have surmised that the Greek word he's used for lady is curia, be a woman named curia. But the kappa isn't capitalized, which if it was someone's name, no doubt it would be capitalized. Uh, those that promote that theory say this lady must be the Virgin Mary. Addressing her and her children. But the Catholics aren't really behind that because they believe in her perpetual virginity. She didn't have other children. So there are two views that I think are most valid. One is that the elect lady is a metaphor for the church, for the bride of Christ, and the children or the members of that church or converts. I like to believe that maybe this is actually a person that he sent this letter to, a woman of God that was part of a congregation that no doubt met in multiple places, because they did according to Acts 20.20, 20, they met publicly and from house to house, that at her house there was a portion of the congregation that met, and so he had ministered in her house, and so he was encouraging her. He begins, the elder to the elect lady and her children. If you look at it in the original, it actually could be translated, the elder elect lady and her children. Those that push for congregations having women elders will push for that translation because the word for elder is presbyteros or presbyter, which is a word meaning elder. And others say that the elder is John addressing someone. I don't have a problem with this lady being honored as elder, and I don't have a problem with her being a leader of all the ministry that happens at her house. And her children, no doubt, she is a spiritual mama. And God knows we have women like that in our church, and all churches have those. You take the spiritual mamas out of the church, churches are going to die. And so he's honoring her and expressing affection for them, whom I love in truth or I truly love you guys, and not only I, but all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, he's using the word truth a lot here, which I believe he's pointing to the gospel, the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, what's going on in his era is error. Just like we have error in our day, there was errors in their day. There's men that will ride their bicycles and wear their black ties and their name tags to your house and tell you they believe in Jesus, but they don't tell you they believe Jesus is the brother of Satan and that Jesus' father used to be a man and there's actually a whole other God that they don't know much about him, but God the Father is a man that works his way up to Godhood. They don't tell you that they believe God the Father lives on a planet Kolob and that all of us were born there before coming here. They don't tell you that we possibly could be centuries old before coming to this planet. They don't tell you all this stuff. 
they're peddling a different gospel of Jesus that was not divine but worked his way up to godhood. This is not the truth of the gospel. And yet, they're nice people. Well, they had this kind of thing happening then. The church world in which we live is exploring different ways to reach the lost, to make the church more accessible, sinner-friendly, as it were. And I have a lot of respect for that emphasis. We've done a lot of changes here because of that, because the church can repel unbelievers by the words we use, the language, the Christianese we use. We all understand each other, but an unbeliever who has no biblical background may not know what in the world are we talking about. You know, somebody walking up to him and say, hey, brother, are you saved or are you lost? He'd say, well, we're not related, and I know where I'm at. You know, they may not relate. So we have to change our methods. But there are some that are, that are taking this approach too far, and they're changing the message. Well, people won't become Christians if you tell them that the blood of Jesus was shed for them. That's gross. Or if you tell them that Jesus died as a substitute, that's child abuse. I mean, this stuff's really happening right now. Guys like Rob Bell came out with this book called Love Wins. God gets what he wants, so everybody's loved. It's basically the message of universalism. If you go to a funeral in Texas, pretty much everybody, even members of our church, when they talk, they sound like universalists. But the truth is, Jesus said he's the only way to the Father. Without him, there is no hope of eternal life. That is the truth. It's not popular. It appears to be offensive to unbelievers. But you know what? The Bible acknowledges that. It says the gospel is a stumbling block. The gospel is foolishness to those who don't believe. So we need to remove the human offensiveness of our methods, but hold to the truth. And so this is John's concern in writing this letter, encouraging this church to hold to the truth. What were two errors floating around in their day? One was Gnosticism, that is, believing in a superior revelation. Gnostic is the glorification of knowledge. Taking stories from the gospel and turning them into metaphors, well, this isn't really true, and Jesus didn't mean that. He just threatened people to get them to straighten up. It even went so far as to say that Jesus wasn't God. He was just a man. And others went too far the other way. Jesus wasn't man. He was a spirit. There actually came a split in the Eastern Orthodox churches between the what's called the Chaldean or Chaldean order and the Coptic orders over these issues. And the Coptics have been accused, and I think there's a certain amount of truth in it, where they so glorify Jesus and so downplay his humanity that they believe other people preach a corrupted Christ. The denomination I was raised in, in the nation of Ethiopia, I wasn't raised in Ethiopia, but one of their leaders in our denomination in Ethiopia got switched doctrinally by the Coptics and began to rebaptize all the denomination's members from in the name of Jesus to in the name of Jesus who's fully divine and began to preach that we had a corrupted Christ, but now we need to have an incorrupted Christ. And so these things are divisive. These things are not the pure truth. These things are distractions. And we've got to be aware of this kind of thing. And so John is praising this church for their stand in truth. And he gets into praising them and then giving them a greeting. And then he begins to affirm the truth. Verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace be with you 
from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Emphasizing the deity of Jesus in his greeting. And he's emphasizing three important things that we all need. We need grace, we need mercy, and we need peace. Peace that passes understanding, peace that comes from God. I've heard it said that grace is God's unmerited favor. It's when he gives us that which we do not deserve. And mercy is also God's favor where he doesn't give us what we do deserve. I like that. Peace is the absence of enmity, the the removal of division, anxiety, anguish is remedied by the peace that God gives us. It comes from his spirit through the finished work that Jesus wrought on the cross, securing our salvation, and the division between us and our Heavenly Father has been remedied through his work on the cross. That is the gospel. If we water that down, if we tamper with that for the sake of gaining members or popularity or not being made fun of on TV, we are in error. And John would rebuke us. All right, verse 4, I rejoice greatly. If you know what rejoicing is, watch a Cowboys game when they score a touchdown. That's rejoicing. He rejoiced greatly that he found some of your children or these people's converts or disciples walking in truth as we have received commandment from the Father. So he rejoiced somewhere along the lines. He crossed paths with some people that had been part of this home church or fellowship or community. And these people were remaining true to the gospel. And it blessed them. And now I plead with you, lady, verse 5, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. I believe he's referring to the commands of Christ, not so much the commands of Moses. Christ came and filtered the commands of Moses, as it were. He embodied them, and he elevated them to levels of the heart. The commandments about Sabbath, he fulfilled. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. The next chapter, he begins to break all their Sabbath traditions. The entire next chapter. Healing a guy on the Sabbath, picking corn on the Sabbath, doing this on the Sabbath, healing multitudes on the Sabbath. Why? He is our Sabbath rest. He's a fulfillment. The Sabbath law points us to our Redeemer. Not killing, he made that a matter of the heart by commanding us not to hate. If you hate, you've got murder in your heart. Adultery, if you lust, you've got adultery in your heart. Coveting, he said, do unto others you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said all the law on the, on the prophets hangs on loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So it all flows out of love. His love, not this sloppy love that the world teaches that if you love me, you'll just approve of everything I have going on in my life. That doesn't mean we have to walk around being the world's micromanagers or inspectors of everybody's sins. At the same time, we walk in love and we're congenial with unbelievers because we want to win them to Christ, right? And so we run around as judges condemning folks. That's going to impact that. And so... The church is to be a place of love, 
but also a place of truth. So you notice he emphasizes truth in these first six verses, and he emphasizes love. There's a verse in Ephesians that talks about speaking the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. Truth without love will kill you. And love without truth ceases to be love. Love is to let your children go outside and play and just have a good time and not be worried about getting hurt. But truth is they can get hurt if they're not careful. So truth says stay out of the street. So if you just have love, have a good time. Without truth, your child can be ran over. So love without truth ceases to be love. It's it's unloving to not warn your children about the need for safety and not being stupid. Truth without love will kill you. It's like an ear of corn. My dad uses this analogy, an ear of corn that you can grind up and feed to livestock, feed to your birds or your chickens and help them grow. Or you can take the same ear of corn and not grind it up and whack him in the head and kill him. So I need truth, but I need love to come with it. John is definitely doing this in this passage. I just want to talk about this love aspect for a few minutes. We're passing around 59 passages involving the word one another in the scriptures. Notice verse 5, I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which you have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Christ had said the two greatest commands were to love God with everything in you and to love your neighbors yourself. And then at the Last Supper, he instituted a new commandment. And the new commandment was to love one another as I have loved you. Some people that I've come across shun the second commandment, which says love your neighbors yourself. Well, I can't love you because I don't love myself. And it's as though some appeal for sympathy or some appeal for victimization because, and I don't mean to sound unmerciful for people that don't like themselves or have a healthy self-respect or esteem for themselves, but Christ circumvented that dodge, as it were, by saying you're supposed to love each other like I have loved you. And he demonstrated that by dying for us, right? Well, how has this walked out? If somebody showed up here and wanted to kill us and one of us said, take me and distracted the person while the rest of us escaped and that person wound up getting killed, that person would have given their life for us, right? Well, that doesn't happen every day. So do we just wait on persecution to come? No, we can live it out now. It's not just dying for the Lord and dying for one another, but living for each other. Look at these 59 one another's of the New Testament. Be at peace with each other, Mark 9.50. Wash one another's feet, which we can talk about how that would apply in our culture. I mean, you can take it literally. I grew up in churches that washed each other's feet once a year and then talked bad about each other the rest of the year. Uh, The phrase, love one another, I think in the New Testament a dozen times. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, Romans 12.10. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another, Romans 12.16. Stop passing judgment on one another, Romans 14, 13. 15, 7 says accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. Romans 15, 14 says instruct one another. Romans 16, 16, and this is in the Bible more than once, greet one another with a holy kiss. How do we apply that in our culture? 
there are some cultures where this happened. I went to a Portuguese Assembly of God church one time and totally freaked out. At the end of the service, the pastor was at the door kissing all the women goodbye. <laughs> the men, not so much, but he was enjoying this verse. Um, anyway, I did not participate in that. He was not being discretionary. I mean, it was all the women. So, you know, it wasn't just the pretty ones. When you come together, wait for each other, 1 Corinthians 11.33. We can do that. Have equal concern for each other, 12.25 of 1 Corinthians and 16.20. There we go again. Greet one another with holy kiss. Serve one another in love. Galatians 5.13. Galatians 5.15. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you'll be destroyed by each other. That can happen. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Galatians 5.26. 6.2 says to carry each other's burdens. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Ephesians 4. Verse 32 says be kind and compassionate to one another and forgive each other. We're to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5, 19, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, we're to consider others better than ourselves. Philippians 2, 3. We're not to lie to each other. Colossians 3, 9, verse 13. We're to bear with one another. In Colossians 3, 13. We're also to forgive whatever grievances we have against one another. And we're to teach each other. See, truth is involved in this practice of loving each other. Teach each other, admonish one another, make your love increase and overflow for each other, encourage each other, build each other up, encourage one another daily, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. There's truth at work. Do not slander one another. Do not grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. That can be scary. But if we're really a place of love, we would be a safe place. Now, keep in mind, a church is a public place made up of all kinds of people, believers and unbelievers, hypocrites and devout disciples. So in applying this verse, confessing your sins to each other, I think it means going to people you trust in the church and say, hey, i got a problem. I need help. I got a stronghold or I keep. I got an addiction. I got a break. I need help. I don't think it means to get up on Sunday morning and blurt your stuff out so the hypocrites can condemn you, judge you, mock you, or whatever. You don't cast your pearls before swine. There's ways to apply these things without dodging applying them, just because Sunday morning is not the perfect occasion. There are other occasions to apply these verses. Do not grumble against each other. Pray for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Live in harmony. Offer hospitality without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, 1 Peter 4.10. This is serious stuff. This is beyond regular weekly attendance, filling out a tithing envelope and reading a chapter a day in your Bible and praying, you know, Lord bless us for no more. This is our life. John is praising this church for walking in love, and then he gives them a warning. Verse 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. We have rewards to look forward to in heaven, so it's important that we take the subject of love and truth seriously, and it all is founded in the faith in a Christ who is God, and he is human. 
And I have heard people dodge his command by saying, well, he was God. He could say that. True. But he is also human. And he lived that as the Holy Spirit helped. Philippians says he, he laid aside his divine rights and lived fully as a man. I believe he did that for us as our example, that we might follow in his what? In his steps. So to deny that he lived in the flesh, to deny that he was a human, sabotages the Christian faith. Do you see that? As much as denying he was God. It sabotages the things he said. Well, he is God, he could say that. Uh, you know, somebody confronts somebody about their lack of love, they say, well, I'm not Jesus Christ. As if that's an excuse. Right? <laughs> Instead of, forgive me, I need help, I'm not Jesus Christ. That comes from error that has somehow found its way either through our forefathers or somebody we heard in a bar somewhere. Where did that come from? That that is antichrist. That's a different Christ. Verse 7 again. Many deceivers have gone out into the world who did not confess Jesus as coming in the flesh. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. There's all kinds of deception out there. Many of them. And we've had a few come through here. We've lost some people because of them. I give you an example, and I will name this man. His name was John Clark, and I heard about him from three other pastors in the city where he had done great damage. When they called me, their stories corroborated each other. They didn't come to me as a group, but they called me. So this guy's named John Clark. Beware of him if he comes. This is what he did at our church. And all three stories lined up. Now, guy number three had a warning, but he didn't really deal with it as quickly as he should have, and he regretted not doing so. So we dealt with it swiftly, and even in dealing with it, which I'll share with you in a minute, we lost some people. John Clark would come to church, look like a normal guy, white guy, about 5'8", five, 5'10", five, maybe, nice-looking guy, jeans and T-shirt. He had showered, obviously. He got himself presentable to be in public. He would go up to the altar during worship, kneel down, and just begin to cry and cry church like ours, people would gather around him and console him and pray with him. They would kind of get to know him. He would come back the next week. This over a period of weeks, it wasn't long till he would begin to shake violently. And it would disrupt the service in such a way and take people's attention away from worship to John. And so this after service would give him more attention. Then he began to give people prophetic words. Just one-on-one, -on -one. you know, after praying with him, he said, you know, brother, I see there's greatness in you. And he would appease people's egos, really build them up. And this would go on for a few weeks before long, the whole church think this is a great guy. Then he suddenly would shift his prophetic words and begin to speak ill of the church leadership. You know, brother, if the pastor knew what he was doing, he would do things differently with your minister or whatever. And it would so see the discord. So not only were they losing visitors because of his bizarre behavior, but now baby Christians are being made prideful and turned against church leadership. And so the church is lost all the way around. So when he showed up at our place, we were ready for him. He went forward one Sunday, and there was the loud crying, okay, this is the guy. So... I got to know him afterwards. 
Other people did. It's fine. Second Sunday, here comes the shaking. So I had men ready. And, you know, I said, you know, we don't know what's the Lord and what's not the Lord. Let's not interrupt the Lord and have him draw attention away from worship. Let's help him find a place to pray in the back. John, let's go on to the back. Well, congregation doesn't know this. I haven't told them any of this. So what people see is a couple of big guys in the church help the guy get up. He's shaking. And they help turn him around. And they're walking him to the back, and he just walks right out the door with them in his side. <laughs> so it looks like we threw a man out of church for experiencing the Holy Spirit. Big one interpretation. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Well, I crossed paths with him that week. We lost some members because we were quenching the Holy Spirit. That's a coffee grinder. I says, John, let's go talk. And so we went over to the gazebo, just him and I. I said, who are you really? What are you really doing? You have done some discord, disunity things at three other churches in the city, and you're not going to do it at Generations. What are you really about? Is this really what you want to be about? He said these words to me. I have been sent by Satan to sow discord in the churches. I said, well, I rebuke that. In Jesus' name, you're going to stop doing that in this town, and you really need to stop doing it. You need to repent because it's not going to go well for you doing that. Demons come back to torment. I said, tell me about yourself. Well, I found out he had children in California he hadn't seen in years. Well, that's all I needed to hear. John, how dare you sow discord in churches when you've got your own front porch needs some cleaning. You've got children that are maybe disoriented, maybe they're mad at God. You've got some ministry to do yourself. And I wouldn't stop. He kept trying to change the subject. Before long, he was running from me. Because he didn't want to hear me telling him he wasn't taking care of his own business. Beware of deceivers. You have a company, sometimes employees will do things like this. Turn people against you. Try to steal clients from you. Don't be naive. So walking in love and truth is a thing of wisdom, not naivety. Don't be suspicious of everybody that is coming your way. As a pastor, I can be overprotective sometimes. Oh, you don't want to do that either. But there's just a balance in this.